We're on uh, chapter 21, uh, verse 1, uh, otherwise known as Mishpatim, page 429. And just by a show of hands, who is a lawyer by profession here? Oh, good. So, not to say, yeah, we only have one lawyer. Only one? Only one. Only one is surprising. To our board meetings. <laughs> yes, exactly, right. Because if we read Mishpatim as lawyers, as critical uh, lo- uh, legalists, we're going to have a very different interpretation of what these laws are about. Um, and I just want to give context to what we came to last week. Yes, Partret Yitro, Revelation itself. Um, a phantasmagoric experience, if you will, that was really about a confounding of laws. Confounding of laws of nature, uh, confounding of laws of society, and ultimately confounding the laws of metaphysics between humans and God, who spoke. And so how do you move from that kind of revelatory moment to... Uh, Law. And Mishpat in Hebrew, Shofet, is to make plain, to make clear. Uh, and nothing can be less clear, good morning, than some of the first laws that we have, uh, as we're going to describe. And so what I want first to think of is always remember the beginning of Revelation, that its principles are grounded in something that is not grounded at all. Uh, because sometimes, like in our family law, uh, we forget what these principles are grounded on, on freedoms, on inspiration, on sacred life. And when you're trying to talk about what health care should be for a slave after he is injured by his master, you say to yourself, what kind of law have we gotten to? So before we move to the kind of... Uh, narrow scope of legal jurisprudence um, I want to define two types of law and I'm sure this is a review for many of you the apodictic and the casuistic do you know these? so these are two terms that are very important no, I don't either. that's oh. not the crossword puzzle here <laughs> but you see uh, dict with a T, like dictation, the d- and words. words, and the casuistic, yeah? So what is word casuistic? Cause. Cause. So the apodictic are the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God, thou shalt not. And we have this both in the end of Parshat Mishpatim, which is, you should not do sorcery. You should not... Uh, take the gods of other gods. You should not boil a calf in its mother's milk. Those are apodictic laws. They're simply dictations. Love your neighbor. You should have the freedom of speech. Casuistic, casuistic is if-then laws. If you have this situation, then here is how you should execute. Cause. Cause and effect. Yeah, if-then. And Mishpatim is beautifully constructed if you just take a global look from Parshat Yitro uh, to the end of Parshat Mishpatim. Uh, you have on the bookends these ultimate value laws. I am the Lord your God. How is that an apodictic law? I am. It's almost radical to say you must 
know that God is God. You shall have no other gods but me. And then in the middle we have the casuistic laws. If this case happens, then we perform that. The trick that I want to just frame this entire uh, session on is how do you move from the casuistic, from these small cases, some of these very particular cases, back to the apodictic, the general claims, the grounded. I love your brother as yourself. Versus, if you hit your brother, I will be very, not just angry, but there has to be some reaction. If you don't make the jam, you will have a peanut butter sandwich without any jelly. As opposed to, feed your children. So, it is very challenging to move from the speechifying to the actual law of cases and cause and effect. And I think the challenge before, we're on page 429, chapter 21, verse 1, Eile hamishpatim, that were put before you. And as we turn the page, and this is where I'd like us to go around, and I really want to open up before we drop into the law itself, when you acquire a Hebrew slave. What is radically, radically challenging about that to you? What must be a total oxymoron to you after what we just read in the last books? Hebrew slave. So someone want to put some words to this? I mean, really, in a forceful way. Uh, I have no abolitionists here. Come on. And no garrisons. Uh. Uh, the Boston should actually speak loudest here. Uh, how could a Hebrew become a slave? Now, finish that sentence. He should be free. He should be free. I am the Lord your God who led you out of Egypt to be your God. And Hebrews should not own other Hebrews. And already that's right. When you acquire as an Ivri a Hebrew slave. So now you have become, as Ibn Ezra, as I mentioned earlier, one of our commentators says, you acquire a slave, it is you who become enslaved. And if anybody struggles, I'm a single parent, so... When I try to get babysitting, I find I'm more of a slave with the babysitter than just trying to figure out how to do it myself. You know, sometimes, and God forbid babysitters are any sort of indentured servants. But this very clear principle should, must be shocking from the apodictic. I am the Lord your God who led you out of Egypt. We're on page 431. No, 430 now, chapter 21, verse 2. So, I mean, it seems so obvious that this should not be. And yet here we are. So now let us move in life. Just give me an example of life. Yes, Harvey. But as you're talking about causalistic, it doesn't say if you require. It just assumes that this is an okay thing. No, ki tikne. when you. When you. It's, yeah, it's not. If ki is both if and when. He is if and when. So you, oh, Harvard, but that's an interesting claim, which is everybody does this. And now, now keep going with that. That's very good because what is case law really about? Real situations. Real life situations. 
Yeah. It had to be happening or they wouldn't have to say what you're going to do about it. And so we could say all we like, on that day my son will make his bed. And on that day, well, when your son decides not to make his bed for three weeks and you find that there are clumps of food within the base of that bed, thou shalt go through a double cleaning session. And I want to say your children should be more responsible. Sorry, I'm, I'm moving away from my kid right now. But you have an evidivri. It should be oxymoronic, and yet here we are. It's like uh, Rousseau's first line. You know, Everywhere man is in chains, but he is born free. It's a lovely thing. You know, we always talk about man is born free, but everywhere around us is servitude. And so, this is how this case law begins, which is giving you seemingly oxymoronic statements. Case, cases, and I'm, this, uh, cases that are almost impossible to lay plain. Yes? Well, one, well, one thing is that, you know, we're reading, we're reading this in the 21st century. So first of all, uh, we see the word slave uh, given our experience with sla- with slavery in this country, which was which I believe is a completely different thing than slavery as practiced in ancient times, even in Rome and Greece and so on. Uh, and and so the question is, uh, is this this is not slavery as in the buying and selling of individual autonomous people? It is more likely to be what they referred to types of inde- what what we would then say is like indentured servitude in yeah. the sense of you have somebody who gets into debt to somebody else and has no way of paying it off other than their labor and so they become that person's slave yes yeah, and, and just to explain on that you know, in, in America with our history of slaves there weren't these kinds of rules and admonitions about slaves. Here we're saying you have a slave, these are all your, your must-dos. I don't think in, in the South they had that. A slave was just property. Well, yes, a slave, a slave was property and, and they were, and had virtually no, no protections under the law. And so it'll be very... Here, here, these individuals still have protections under the law. And explicit, these are the protections that we are giving them, and you can make the argument with indentured servitude that is choice. A, a difficult choice, but ultimately if someone does not have the means to live, they can choose to you know, put themselves under a home. And this particular case, Evadivri, yes, sir. How would you interpret the slavery in Egypt that we experienced? So, Historically, there are new challenges to the level of indentured servitude that archaeological evidence shows they had homes, that perhaps that they did not live in such indentured, uh, similar to what we think about, like African-American slavery, that it wasn't so bad in Egypt, which really reinterprets. This is... This is kind of a conspiracy theory, which really, when they say, oh, back in Egypt we had it good, they didn't have it so bad. And it took a leader like Moses and this divine kind of cataclysmic event to make them leave. And yet, I think if we quickly move to the uh, apolog- 
I don't want to say apologetics, but the real-time kind of facts of indentured servitude, and that, just take Hammurabi's code, for example, and other cuneiform codes, leave this law, slave law, to the very end of their uh, law code. We put it at the very beginning of our law code, how to treat the Hebrew slave, which already upgrades that class of character. And so you can say, with amongst of these preparative legal theory, would say, we privilege it. And yet, I'm also of two minds, and my stronger mind says, bummer, we didn't get there. We've, we just got out of the gate, and our first law is, in some ways, a compromise that this individual did not have the means. And I think about this indentured servitude in, like, uh, Roma indentured servitudes like there is no choice but to be a housekeeper in this kind of way? Do they really have that option to go anywhere? Or a part-time Starbucks worker who is really, I mean, it's tough to call them indentured servants. Like, they have the choice. Like, my son, the capitalist, they have a choice to work wherever they want. But do they? Can they? And so I'm really struggling with this both justification and and, and uh, underlying concern. But uh, doesn't isn't this also setting up, uh, and now I realize now I'm going to Fast forward a thousand years, but this is sort of like the beginnings of a a moral view where you have a a Jewish zealot like Jesus saying, "Whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me." So this is this is framing like you, when you were talking about Hammurabi. The Hammurabi code is sort of like you know this is what the king has to do, this is what the ministers have to do, this Correct. is what the the monthly months have to do, and then you work your way down to these are the rules for the slaves. Whereas, whereas we turn it upside down, and we say that you can't have a just society unless you've figured out how to deal with the most vulnerable people in your society. And you don't have to go a thousand years, you can go two chapters. Kiger Hayita. You were a stranger, you must empathize, you must put yourself in the lower position from that position of power, which is very powerful, and yet I still think not good enough. When I go back to that freedom, phantasmagoria, and yet you need, do need laws. You need these principles. Uh, yes, uh, Judith and then George, please. How does this apply, and thank you. Th- this idea of slavery, and I'm having trouble with the definition of slave, to the role of women in some Muslim countries where they can do nothing without the permission of a man. They can't go out, they can't do anything. Well, l- we can re- so then, well, we can return back to uh, Amma, Amma, because here, uh, verse 7, and forgive me if we don't go word by word this time, because I want to get to Lextalian, because, uh, eye for an eye, because the presentation of the law seems so clear, but it's really uh, a very different interpretation. So here, when a parent sells a daughter as a slave, ki imkor ish et bitola amam, on verse 7, page 431. Yes? 431, verse 7. Ve ki imkor ish et bitola amam, lo tetzeke avadim. If you sell your daughter as a slave, don't let her free... Don't let her go free as other slaves. This Amma is not a slave. This is like if you watch Game of Thrones, something like that, where you have a beautiful daughter. You may be, I mean, in theory, not a slave or not poor, but you want to... 
Have you ever heard this term, hypergamy? Guess what it means? Well, monogamy, polygamy. Many. Many wives. No, that's polygamy. So hyper, up, gamy. Elevated marriage, marrying up. I love that term. Hypergamy. Yeah, stepping up. So here we are, Judith. This is a case of an ama. Don't think, oh, I'm in chattel. But think, hey, here's a nice house. Here's my daughter. You can either marry her yourself or your son can marry her. And that's not slavery. And that's why it says, you can't let her go like Avadim. And look at this protection on verse 8. If she proves to be displeasing to her male master. I mean, this case law is so so convoluted, and yet you see it's trying to be a protection. So this is what I want to suggest, and I will fully admit, I think these are apologies for some of the original texts that we had slavery and we had misogyny in these texts. But you can see the protections written within them. But I'm admitting the disclaimer that I'm working really hard to find them. Do you see that... It's a cha- it's a struggle. If he is disple- she, she proves to be displeasing to her master who designated her, he must let her be redeemed. He can't sell her to outsiders. He broke his faith. Do you understand the context? They made a deal. Yes, but he's still selling her. He, he cannot. Oh, he cannot sell her. He cannot sell her. No resale. He has to allow her to be redeemed. He has to. Free. In other words, cash. A cash exchange. So you could say that it's selling her, but you could also say, I'm sure that he got a bride price for, the, the father got a bride price for his daughter. Kind of, yes. Because he can't say, I don't like this one. I don't like it anymore. By the way, you're a slave now. So, is that a protection? Or is that, oh, what a society. The answer for me? Kind of. I wonder how she feels. <laughs> Mishpat, late play. Feeling? Hurt? You know what? I don't know. You know, after watching Game of Thrones and Sansa, I don't know. Did anybody watch Game of Thrones? Mm-hmm. Sansa's the woman. I don't know how she feels because sometimes she's matter. excited about all of the wealth and the glory of being participatory and sometimes she's trapped. And I think, you know, the Jewish law. Do I love the laws that are before me? I do. I love God with all my heart, soul, and might. Is it tough at 4.30 to try to think about a soup on the next day because I have to do this and this because the laws have trickled down that way? It's annoying. Not annoying. It's hard. It's a challenge. This is between, again, I want to return to this theme of Yitro, this amazing revelation of this freedom. And then in reality, in that application, how hard it is to actually continue to create that sense uh, of liberty. Please. Two questions, yeah. One, in the initial thing, uh, that if the Hebrew slave doesn't want to be free, he can sign up and still be a slave. So slavery wasn't so bad if this is a reasonable option. Well, reasonable option. So this is a case law, then I would deconstruct it this way. If you want to be a slave, you are Hebrew, and you have chosen to be an indentured servant, and you want to do this for the rest of your life, you've got to go to the temple, 
you've got to put not just any door. You've got to go to the sanctuary door and take your ear, which is actually idolatry in a sense, to poke a hole through your ear. You know the Maasai Mara in Africa? They have those huge earrings. And actually more kids are doing this now, growing their ears. This was theological. This was where the uh, where the God would enter. And so too, circumcision is this body change in order to say this is where my God is. I think about my God when I have my my manliness change so here when they do this they have to do this in front of the temple before all of their society that says I am forever now leaving you staying with this guy yes not leaving with you now do you think that's that's a celebratory uh, ceremony. Oh, it's a resignation. It seems like brand, like when you brand cattle. It is. Yeah. You know. He is proactively making this choice. Yeah. But what's the other choice? I mean, if if you he can go free after seven years. Yes, but to and, what? Well, if he and it says that look, if if he came single, he should leave single. But if he had a wife. He can leave with him. So it depends. Now, the irony is, what guy really is coming? If he's got all this stuff, why is he going to be a slave in the first place? And we know that the Jubilee year, that 49th year or the 7th year, can release him as well. There are other releases. But, I so now I need my help of the lawyer. Is this case law really providing actual cases? Or are we constructing these cases so that you say... Read under the line, which is, if you want to do this, you better watch out. Don't do this. You're, let me say that again. That sounds more like the sexuality is of it. That it is not actual laws. These are ways to say, don't sell your daughter to a guy who's going to pawn her off. And if you do want hypergamy, meaning <coughs> you think you can marry her off to something, you better watch out. You better know who you're who you're getting in business with. Yeah, I think uh, if you view these Torah mishpatim as sort of a, a breakthrough in terms of the way people treat each other, so being written in the context of creating more humane and humanitarian system, this would be an improvement over the ambient culture. This provides a step up, a way out, which otherwise would have been permanently and forever explained. Mm. Another mm. question. Does this apply to non-Hebrews? Uh, this is ki tikne evit ivri. This is yeah, a Hebrew so slave. This Hebrew does not to apply Hebrew. to other slaves. No, it does not. But they're talking Jew, uh, not Jews, but mm-hmm. Hebrew to Hebrew. Yes. Um, and this is all the same. I missed the beginning, but... And you speak about freedom and slavery. Those are like very big con- concepts and there are lots of definitions. Correct. But maybe, historically, if they're slaves for 400 or how many, hundreds of years, that's what they are. The freedom is just that they weren't doing it for an Egyptian king. They were able to pray or have their own worship or their own God according to... 
Exactly. So the freedom isn't necessarily related to slavery. The freedom is to live the same, what they knew, but to live it in terms of their own God and their own law and their own yes. adaptation of where they came from. So this is, I love Isaiah Berlin's concept, there is freedom from, so they were, they were, right, they were, they were left out of Egypt, they were free from that servitude, but they weren't really sure what they were free to do, and that's why law, these laws are so important in context of these other cultures, uh, cults, instead of cultures, and that's why it's so important at the end of this uh, section of Mishpatim, it says, do not worship the way of these other gods. And that's law. That's why this is so, for me, important is these, these principles are not, these are the top ten things of Israelites. This is really down in the weeds because I don't know how to be free outside of that. There's a social construct and then there's a spiritual religious... And that's why, that's the beginning of, that's exactly how we set up this this particular section is how do you move from Revelation to on Tuesday when you have uh, you know both a job and someone who's sick who do you go to and should he be compensated for that but the commandments are very much like social law it's like how to live with fellow man I mean you don't steal you don't lie you don't I mean those are laws in and of themselves of how to get along in a community so I would say that they are wise why it's important, don't murder, don't steal, as principles. I don't know if they're hows. Mishpatim, this is how we work through some of these problems. The initial laws are things like, I love you, don't be, don't bear false witness is good, but it doesn't really give you the how. It just... Well, the first, the first commandment about Shabbat is how to be with God, isn't it? And the first commandment in general, I am. I think that is exactly, we're we're saying the same thing, which is, that's what we're trying to figure out. Okay, that's awesome. I had revelation, I was in the desert. Okay, but now it's lunch. (laughs) Like, how, how, how do I, and by going from bottom, I mean, it's a radical move from going to the Evidivri is the very case that I don't want to consider, I'm free. So then they, they put us in this challenge and, and it continues to put very challenging cases. Right. And it's not ideal. It's not, here are the best, ten best ways to be every day. You should brush your teeth every day. You should do... What it's really saying is, okay, this is where we've stepped in it. This is where it doesn't work. How do we be... Uh, and I think why I really want to spend uh, it's, uh, at least 10 minutes on the abortion law here uh, or of the case of the lost fetus because no one wants this situation. I mean, it's a horrible situation to be in. But that's very much how we define our kind of limits of society and, and, and values and priorities, which is painful and difficult, but I think almost more religious than... I am the Lord your God who let you out of Egypt to be your God. Do not ever harm another and love your neighbor as yourself, which are beautiful principles, but we know there's harm. And so then how do we effectively work through real life using these principles to ground us or to lift us? Even though this is going forward a little bit, uh, you know, when 
a few more shots from there when we get to the golden calf. Yes. The golden calf is almost a perfect example of what freedom isn't. You weren't, you weren't brought out of Egypt to be free to do anything you want. The whole point of the law is you, you've been given, you have freedom to serve. Yes. And that's what the freedom is. I mean, I, and it's a tremendous irony in a couple of weeks. I mean, I love talking about the kids with this because they think freedom means that they can go play. But the golden calf is about play. Freedom is about what to do and, and to actually serve and be purpose. That's true freedom. To be free to sit and play video games all day is a golden calf because it's this object that's in front of you instead of I don't know. They're up on the mountain creating this great law, and that was a, a tremendous slippage. Micah? Yes. When in, in Jewish law and Jewish history was it wrote, written or spoken that you can't sell your daughter? Period. I mean, not, these are laws about what happens when you sell your daughter. When did it change where you can't do that anymore? Because I see women as pawns in this law. And women and men. Uh, yes, there are also yes, men, yes. but men men were always. Yeah. I understand men were the the top, but when did it, or has it ever gotten to the point where you you can't arrange something for your daughter's life without her without her involvement? So there's actually Rabbeinu Gershom, 10th century. <laughs> So, and Judaism. So now I'm moving historically Judith. 10th century Rabbeinu Gershom, North Africa. Several debates about questions of polygamy and questions of a takana, of why monogamy versus polygamy, because it's very hard to justify that there is no polygamy in the Bible. There is. And also, so with that, slave law and the questions of slave law, even in this, in our country, in America, there was debate over whether this was unethical as a biblical principle or not. So I would say up until today, we have these questions of, where is the role of egalitarianism within Judaism? And obviously, Reconstructionist Judaism has taken a different direction. But we're continuing. So that, I, I know, it's Judith, I think that was a trick question in a sense of when did it become? But even, but even in modern I mean, up until the 19th century or even later, I mean, you still have dowries when, when, when yes. women are, you know, I mean, and in effect, then you're not even, you're not even, uh, you're not even selling the daughter because you're not getting a price for the daughter. You're giving incentives right. to the male to pay the daughter. Right. right? So, Do you guys know the Aguna? Have you ever heard of the case of the Aguna? This is someone who wants a divorce, a woman who wants a divorce yes. from a male, but the male is really the one. That's you, recently in the news. Okay. So, so to your point, so an aguna is a woman who's been married to a man, or is currently married. She wants a divorce. He will not give her a get, a right of divorce. So if you're asking this question, when did Judaism come it to be evolved? Happened. We're working on it. And yet, I want to return back again. Work on it. On all of it, Not yes, just that. But uh, just between, seen. just between, you know, New York State is now uh, in, for the first time in what forty years to kind of increase pro-choice uh, availability to uh, even up to the ninth month, late term, and we need to work on it. We just can't simply. How these laws are applicable really to males primarily. I mean, the woman, yes, uh, can't be. 
I don't know, Judith. I see. I, now I'm going to go to my. I'm so rabbinic in this way. I want to go to the. Go to the other side. Yeah, I just think, even back to that first question, that this female, if she proves to be displeasing, that he cannot. It's not a matter of whether he likes to be with her or not. That's a protection for the woman. Let me give you another one that, uh, in Deuteronomy, and it'll be a couple of months. But you guys know the bloody sheet rule. Mm-hmm. Right, it feels pejorative, offensive. Couldn't get more misogyny. If you look, and this was uh, from my teacher Diane Friedland. She was wonderful. Uh, She wrote in the Anchor Bible uh, the section on sexuality, and her theory on this, the sheet rule is: if a man does not like his new wife anymore, if he doesn't like his new bride. And says, you know, like a lemon law, so to speak. Eh, not so much. Then, then all, then what the woman's parents have to do is provide a sheet with blood on it. And that will prove her virginity. And therefore, not only may he not marry, uh, divorce her or let her go, he must pay restitution to the parents of something like, I think 200 shekel or 400 shekel. So, on the one hand, ill, right? And it, ill in the sense of that you have proof of virginity, and we know this isn't how it works, and that there are plenty of problems with this law. Right. As a legal fiction, and as a sense of protection, what at first seems to be misogyny is in fact protecting this daughter and her parents from saying at any point he could take a chicken and put her on a sheet to show the, the, the judges by the way judges Elohim and God are the same word so that judges do substitute for this sense of divinity and so she has absolute protection to what? so that this man knows when he's getting married there's no lemon law you're talking about protection in these laws yes but what I'm wanting is for her to have agency. The parents have agency, the guy has agency, and she's just passing Yeah. Well, does everyone feel that? Uh, she's property. Just a, yeah, she's property, right? Well, was it, yeah. Wasn't it Rachel, whose parents said, oh, i got to have... You you want her as the bride? Let's go ask her if she agrees. Yes, that was Rebecca, actually. Yeah, Rebecca sorry. and you. Isaac. So there is some agency. Uh, it was rare, but I, but that was she. She could have said no. And so yes, so you're basically saying that women are property, and Evid is slavery, and women are these categories. And in some ways, yes, but I could also apologize for the text and say, we're putting Gesundheit at the front of all of our laws. This is not about kings and not about the priesthood. This is about the most marginalized, Kigir Hayita, because you were a stranger. And amongst those is Hayatobe Amana, the widow and the orphan. So it is upgrading their category, but that still recognizes that they're in a subordinate category. That, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna whitewash it. Yeah. When she loses a widow, and what about the rest of the 
they're not going to be able to marry her off again. Yes, they not at the same, and that is true that the bride price is different for virginity at, uh, as opposed to afterwards. And yes. So once again, she turns into property damage. You know, it's kind of debt. But there's also this. Yeah, and I think that while the case law presents that as the problem, I think the uh, the effective result is that that husband is not going to make that same choice, or that Hebrew slave is going to think twice about that ritual, because you know, like back to the Hebrew slave in our beginning case. Yeah, I'll take another seven years. It's cool. It's okay. I get my paycheck. I can do what I need. Every, I'm taken care of. I'll do it another seven years. What they're saying is, no, you really have to face a stark choice, and you better be very clear what you're doing. This is putting yourself from an indentured servitude that has a means to freedom. And what's amazing is about uh, some of these, let's just... Well, I want to take this next case about uh, the fight um, before, before we go. Before you leave that, has there always been a ketubah? Was that an early... No. Okay, that came That's not out. in the Bible. There is Sefer Kritut, which is a divorce contract in Deuteronomy. But no, because sexuality, sex, keter starubia is the way they say it in the Mishnah, is that if you have a marriage, uh, uh, sex or a document. But that's in the Mishnah, not in the... Okay. Throughout the Bible, that wasn't how uh, these... Con- they weren't uh, contracts. There's a protection in the Ketubah as well. Protections in the Ketubah, absolutely. But that's a, a earliest extent. We're talking first... Uh, late, late, late. Okay, we're on verse now. 22. When two parties struggle, yinatsu nun tzadi tzadi. The rabbis debate whether that's it's an it's a brawl, it's an argument. Okay, and one of them pushes a pregnant woman, and a miscarriage results. Okay, let's just take a step back. How, how is that, Harvey? How is this the case law that is this a common occurrence? Is it so common that you would put it in this way? Or, I have to refer back to my legal counsel, do we feel like we're constructing a legal case here so that we can really talk about what status a fetus has? Yeah. <laughs> did, I, did I say you? Did I set up a straw man in that case? So sounds like a tough one. Let alone uh, what? Where my mind goes? Yeah. Why is somebody pushing a pregnant woman that's not even their family? I mean, what is your family's problem? Oh, okay. And why? What she didn't like your pros in the market? Now I studied this I, this morning. I tried to find <laughs> what I thought. Right. Mm-hmm. So why? Why would a woman be between two men? Right. Why would a pregnant woman be between two men? To try to break up. Go there. Uh, Yeah. Because she's not sure who she's been sleeping with whose baby it is. That's right. So she's an unmarried woman. No, she's a married woman to one of them, but two guys are fighting. Over her? That for me is... 
Yeah, it is. I know. And I looked and I didn't find it because what they're trying to determine here is rights, responsibilities. And it focuses actually more on the woman and the fetus. But why do we have this case structure in the beginning? I'm thinking about, you know, just like we have these other cases. I, th- I think it makes it more interesting, but it's speculation. It's very I don't think so. <laughs> but what is a common thing is uh, pregnancy and miscarriage. And I, and I think from this law, and we know this from Hammurabi, and terminations of, of pregnancies and fetus. You preface this with what about uh, abortions and so forth and, and stop pregnancies. So this is an arbitrary situation set up. It turns into kind of an accident. Like a woman... It's never an accident, really, when you get pregnant. But if you're if you're raped or if you're uh, with someone, and, you know, there are accidents that occur. You don't intend pregnancy. And, yes. And here she's lost the fetus, so it's a good case law. Yeah, but you have to finish the sentence. It says uh, the damages shall be based on what her husband says. So I don't know that these two men are being pregnant based on the whole sentence. So. Mm-hmm. If two parties fight, the nagfu isha hara'a. But it says, if two men fight and uh, assaulted the woman, the pregnant woman, it doesn't say, and one of them, so you can't really know which of the two guys actually did this? Did what? Pushed the woman, uh, assaulted the woman to the point that her fetus uh, leaves. Does it say that one of them is her husband? No. No. So she could be walking down the street and get yeah. in the middle of a fight right. or something. Right. Okay. <laughs> I think that's more of a stretch than mine. <laughs> which is also to say, don't sleep with another man's wife. Which we already have that law. But like, these are the things that can, these are the what things that, <clears throat> right. So, this is why I like having only one lawyer in here and more therapists. <laughs> oh, two, five. But what I, what I do, I want to take the spiritual context of it, which is, you know, as opposed to, and marriage, as opposed to these chattel property, this is, you know, this is a sacred relationship. And then this child, this potential child, uh, the miscarriage results. The law, now that I just need, let's, let's go back to our legal, very narrow minds. When two men struggle and a woman is assaulted, a, a woman is struck and the pregnancy leaves, uh, it's a uh, miscarriage ensues, it says, but, and leaves the product, Yeladeha, her product, Velo Yiye Ason, and there is not a disaster, Anosh Yeanesh, you must certainly find them, Ka'asher Yashit Alav, that it should be demanded of him, the master of this woman, and it will be based on flilim, which they say here is reckoning, but according to the standards of 
at what point the value of this fetus is. Now, the reason that's so complicated in text is it doesn't tell you what a dis- the disaster is. And this is the, the Latin Vulgate uh, translates the disaster as that the miscarriage of the child uh, dies. Because they, you could read this, just read this the way a Catholic would read it, which is, if two men struggled and a pregnant woman has her child and there's no disaster, definitely you should punish him, the person who struck, and you should pay according to the damages to that woman. Does the Hebrew say when two men? Because this says when two parties fight. Two men. Anashim. Okay. I mean, you could translate it that way. But do you understand how you could very clearly read this as that the disaster would be that the fetus was lost. The Hebrew Bible, we do not read it that way. We read it as when two men struggle and a woman loses her fetus and there is no disaster, meaning the woman does not die, then the man needs to be punished financially for that fetus as they go according to the actuarial table of at what point along that pregnancy that that value of the fetus is worth. So the asson would be, it's really between the Catholics and the Jews, the debate is, what's the disaster? Right. Because it's no not a disaster, disaster if the fetus is lost, right. according to the Hebrew, uh, according to the Israel, uh, I, I want to say Judaism, because this is still in the Bible. But do you see how that's an issue of translation? Mm-hmm. That's not a personal choice. That's when something external causes that. That's different than personal choice. True. Oh, as opposed to uh, the debate about abortion yes. in general. Yes. Yeah. Although, I would, I would argue that by showing that, and this is in the Talmud, that up to the 40th day, a fetus is considered as water, up to the, but not, not beyond, and that the third trimester is only if life for life. If that fetus is going to kill the woman, then you actually can terminate that pregnancy, and this is why that New York law is really about the urgency of this of this woman. She could die as a result of that, but that's also saying that that life is is viable. So it does. Judaism does have very strict determinations on what is kosher abortion, so to speak, and not. But the case here in the biblical context is a very literal read that could go both ways. Now, was that moral ambiguity, not moral, was that linguistic ambiguity intentional? This is back to the Lord. It must, for me, it's setting up a situation that is, I I don't think it's, let me say it clear. By making the fetus a price, it would never be that the fetus is considered a life. Why? Because we have in the next sentence. Because why? If other damage ensues, the penalty should be life for life. The next sentence. The next sentence, which means if the woman dies and this man was responsible for killing the woman, now that is a life for life. If there is no disaster, meaning the fetus is lost, but the woman survives... We have to go according to the financial pecuniary damage and not life for life.
I don't want to make this more complicated, but I'm sort of curious. Uh, <clears throat> death in child uh, of a child of, of a young child in the first days or weeks was so common. Yes. In that era, not to speak of loss of life of the mothers, etc., and childbirth. That I thought there was <clears throat> uh, up until like a week. So well, that's the bridge, eighth day. You you were not, there was no funeral, for example. Different category. So Although how, we've changed how that. You, yeah. How was the, so I, I guess what I'm lear learned, I didn't understand, is uh, that there is, at least in the Mishnah, from what you said, there's discussion of life, a, a, a fetus being considered a life uh slightly before born, I trying to reckon that with gee, we really don't have a funeral until after a week. So there's a debate. It is within Judaism a debate. Uh, you know, I, I believe it's Reb Chia who says even after the 30 days you could go as far as 30 days even after we don't consider it viable. Eighth day of the bris, you could say it's a week and a day. But yeah, viability is very liable. And the grief, I know, and this is just pastorally, that sometimes after a miscarriage or an abortion, there's a tremendous loss. And you think you're doing the person a service by doing a full funeral and burying them in a cemetery to give them that grief. But then that, that, that fetus has become the standard of the child. And that's why traditional uh, Judaism does not recommend that not just recommend, but you're not allowed to bury in the same way. And Reb Chia's very far position, the most maximal. I think it says Kamaim. It's like water up to the first trimester, and even in the first 30 days, we don't really have that that sense of stability. But I uh, think in this debate, it's 17 weeks. It does talk about when you have the formation of a spine. So, And that goes right along with American law, too, about that life really in this first trimester is in this questionable period. But we really want to make uh, shift uh, the question of freedom of choice in that third trimester to the health and stability of, of the woman. Uh, I thought that the baby, the fetus, was considered an appendage of the mother until it was born that the soul did not enter until the baby was born. That's one position. That is one position, because I can show you from Genesis, I mean, uh, Yitzhak, right, the Esau and Jacob were in the womb, they were struggling in the womb. Those are, those are two children, right? I mean, uh, we're not going to solve this debate, but there are a range of these opinions. So Jewish and one law of, varies according to... Jewish law does not vary. The opinions uh, of the rabbis within it vary from conception to uh, even after, and that was a good point, even after that point. Mm -hmm. But what's challenging, and this is, you know, as I'm debating with my son, it is very hard to kind of put these markers. And I think back to this casuistic law, which is how do we say the sacredness of life and the, the ability for... Uh, this this uh, this terrible terrible circumstance. Who is being privileged here? Um, I don't. I think the woman is being privileged here, uh, and not this fetus. Because, for example, Sarah, if the fetus were privileged and the woman was not, that because the fetus was a male, for example, if that's how this case law went, if the fetus was a man, 
Then the woman, you know, and the woman died. We, I mean, this is not our case law. So I do see a certain protection for this woman. And not to put a, a pregnant woman in the middle of a fight is that initial, like, what? Don't put a pregnant woman in the middle of this struggle. This doesn't say how pregnant she is. No. That's interesting. Well, pregnant enough so that Yatsu Yeladeha. So when you say first trimester, you're, you're trying to the first three months, but then you said 17 weeks. So what, so, what is the... There are ranges. There are ranges. I mean, this would be an entire separate class, which is 17 weeks is the formation of the spine. They say when it looks, I believe the Talmud says when it looks like a, a shell. So when you have that beginning, that can be considered the conce- uh, considered 17 weeks first three months and then just as just as American jurisprudence tries to set down these stages which we have not been able to uh, really determine Gesundheit my, my sister's an OBGYN and what she's just said in the last 40 years the viability of even at you know 30 weeks 40 it's incredible 30 weeks 40 weeks are you kidding me I mean we're talking 16, 17 weeks sometimes they can help with neonatal care to to have a child survive on its own. So and is this, I, yeah. Is this variance of when an abortion is permitted religiously within orthodoxy, conservatism, reform, and is that where the line is drawn or just generally? Um, it, it both goes by denomination. I, I would say that conservative and reform, it really goes down to the burden of the mother that if there is uh, mental anguish, so that question of whether I should have this child or not, orthodoxy would say that is not uh, a question. The other challenge here is, let's be very frank, that if you have a child and you've done an amniocentesis and there is Tay-Sachs or another Down syndrome or other kind of issues, conservative and orthodox disagree on whether that would be uh, an appropriate uh, amniocentesis within the first trimester. I just want to be very clear. That whether that is an appropriate termination of a pregnancy. And have the other two denominations come out with a statement to that regard? Yes, I, I, each I believe each movement has this, has pretty pretty clear guidelines. But again, anguish of the woman. Yes, that's a very hard one. Emotional distress, harm. Very interesting. And yet here, I think yes. No, I'm just I, I just think it's really important, and the irony of the the final clause to this is we're truly trying to be in this kind of question of what is life, what is not life. And when does life begin? Yeah, and what is the the just reciprocity? Ein tachat ein, shen tachat shen, yad tachat yad, regel tachat ragel, kviya tachat kviya, petza tachat patza, chabura tachat chabura. It seems so clear. Lex Talion. And we know this. Hammurabi's code had the very same words. I mean, in, in uh, kineiform and on Hebrew, this for that, this for that, this for that. And uh, and the rabbis say clearly, anybody who believes that it's simply this for that is not a rabbi. Any rabbi who says this for that, okay, we did it. That there's a just exchange there is not being rabbinic. And so, to this point, how hard it is to determine that. Of course, in that time, trying to keep the population alive, every birth was the celebration, yeah. really. So you, I, I think now we have so many people hungry and so many people suffering 
that we're a little more lax in our oh, interesting. judgment. Of I, I don't know about that. I don't know. I don't know about that. Uh, I think the Octomom, I think, was a fascinating yes, case a few years ago. Yeah. Oh, Please, but let's... Uh, you know, the radical thing is, actually, in this argument altogether, is that there should even be personal choice. Because everything is, is, is strict as law. Right? Yeah. When you're under the law. And just to say that it's a woman's choice, or it's a husband and wife's choice, or it's a family choice, that it's a personal choice, yeah. is actually radical yes. to this. Yeah. That's interesting, because it's true, like uh, the Bader Ginsburg argument on Roe v. Wade taking it to privacy, the private, this is my, in my privacy, I can choose what I want to do, that was a strategic radical choice, versus equity, or versus kind of what is fair, or supportive. Um, but, even, but even the eye for an eye, I mean, the life for life, eye for eye, even that is not, that's not prescriptive necessarily in the sense that it's it it put it sets an upper bound on what you can do it doesn't mandate that 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 that's what you do in other words huh. it, you know huh. and, and uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and a life for a life makes is a is a very sort of uh, vindictive sounding trade you know uh, a life from somebody in my tribe has been taken, therefore I am entitled to take a life from your tribe. So I'm not obligated to take right. a life from your tribe. So now let me, oh, and by the way, Hammurabi, you look here. Hammurabi's regulation, the one who kills a pregnant woman loses a daughter. The one who, who kills a pregnant woman, they actually take life for life. So I want to argue strongly that our Torah's genius is taking this Hammurabi law sticking it in such a nebulous context to make you, force you to say, it can't be eye for eye. Yes, I believe in equity. I believe that there should be some balance, but it's not going to be an eye for an eye. And the Talmud's genius on this, which is, if you take the eye of someone who uh, threads the needle through a pearl, and you take the eye of someone who is blind, that is not an eye for an eye. If you take a, a, a security guard's hand versus someone who is the first violinist for the L.A. Phil, that's not a hand for a hand. And civil damages, I mean, what the genius of civil damages is all about is how do you determine these things that are trying to get back to some reciprocity? And that eye for an eye cannot mean that. And a Hebrew slave can't be a Hebrew slave. And a woman who is betrothed can't simply be chattel. So each of these statements, and you will see God can't be... Now now I want to go back, just to conclude back where I began, that we saw God can't mean that I saw God. And that God said, you know, I uh, keep Shabbat, do entire rest, do not work. Well, it can't be, because if I'm entirely resting, I'm not a Karaite. I can't simply cease from all work. That law, and this I'll just close on this, that all law has to be taken both at this face value and that the brilliance of rabbinic nature is to look at the words and then understand the meaning behind that and really connect those dots between these ten principles and the real life living of this. And that's authentic <coughs> living. Is it always perfect? It's a, it's a challenge and a struggle. But at the end, we, uh, I think, connect ourselves back to that Sinai moment by living these very practical, practical challenges.